0: Hello friends and welcome to Conversations with Consequences. We are the radio show and podcast of the Catholic Association where we aim to change the culture one conversation at a time. You can listen to conversations with consequences on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio network Saturday mornings at 7 a.m. Eastern, or catch the encore at 5 pm. We are also on Sirius XM channel 130. Of course, our radio show is always a podcast, go to thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts or directly to wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and as always, I thank you for listening to Conversations with Consequences. It's wonderful to have our listeners join us week after week. We wouldn't be here without our wonderful listeners. This week, we have a great show for you, as we always do, I hope. An old friend of the show, Carrie Gress, author of The Theology of Home Books, Her latest book is called The End of Woman, How Smashing the Patriarchy Has Destroyed Us. But first, we have Colm Flynn from EWTN News, who just got back from Portugal, from Lisbon. My own daughter is going, my 16-year-old daughter. I'm very excited for all the young people that are going and all the spiritual benefits that they will receive. Welcome to the show, Colm.
1: Gracie, it is always great to talk to you and to be here on your program. I'm smiling. I know people can't see this on the radio, but I'm smiling as I talk. <laughs>
0: well, I can see you and I'm also smiling broadly. It's wonderful to catch up with you. <laughs> you were just uh, in Ireland, I know, for a family occasion. And I was just in Ireland. And I, 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 it's a beautiful country. And everyone's so friendly and kind. And it was a wonderful experience. I'm very happy that you got to go back because you must miss it as you live in Rome.
1: And it was a miracle because when you were there, it did not rain
0: i wouldn't go so far as say it did not rain it didn't rain constantly and we had lots of nice times that were almost sunny but we were very happy because uh, it was in the 60s it's been very hot in miami where i live and i know it's probably been very hot in rome too
1: yeah here in rome it's been touching off 43 degrees oh wait you days. have to give
0: us the fahrenheit or it won't make any sense to oh, us
1: you know 100 degrees celsius is boiling point So 43 degrees Celsius. I mean, we're talking hot.
0: Okay, well, in Ireland, it was 15 and 16 degrees. So it was a very big differential, right? It was very nice.
1: Huge difference. People here were putting their heads into the Trevi Fountain just to cool down. Uh, You know, we're not, we don't, it's illegal. We don't recommend people do that, but (laughs) that's how bad it got here.
0: But in any case, you also uh, were in Portugal because you went to prep for World Youth Day, which you will be covering, and that kicks off next week in Lisbon. Uh, my own daughter, as I mentioned earlier in the introduction, is will be there. Um, she's 16, and this will be, her, of course, her first World Youth Day. I've never been able to go myself, but I, I'm very excited for her because... So many people I've talked to that uh, have gone to World Youth Days, they, these are fabulous opportunities for young people, Things, experiences that stay with them their entire lives and energize their faith um, for decades to come. So tell us what you found in in Lisbon when you were there and what you're hoping for, Colm.
1: Well, Gracie, your daughter and I share something in common then, because I too have never been to a World Youth Day before. I remember watching the last one in Panama from a distance and thinking I'd really love to go to that so i'm excited not just to be going to world youth day but i'm lucky enough to be involved centrally involved in ewtn's coverage across uh, the english-speaking television network so i'll be hosting a lot of the coverage on our english satellite all over the world so that's going to be so exciting to bring to the viewers at home into their sitting rooms onto their smartphones the colour, the vibrancy, amazing stories of encounter that people are going to tell us, hopefully, when we get there to Lisbon.
0: Did you get an, an idea of how many people will be there? Because I hear wildly different amounts. Um, it's hard to get to Lisbon, right? It's not, <laughs> I mean, depending how far you're going, really... but it's not like popping popping across the road, yeah. right?
1: No, it's hard and it's also expensive. That mm-hmm. has been one of the big barriers to this World Youth Day. I mean, you think of Rio de Janeiro, where I think there was 3 point something million people that turned up for World Youth Day. In uh, Poland, there was 3.7 million people. They're not going to get those kinds of numbers for Lisbon. They're estimating, at the moment, they say around 600,000 people have registered. Now, those people who've registered, many won't go because they just registered while they're thinking about it. But on the other hand, you'll have people who sign up at the last minute and who go along.
0: is the expense coming in? Is it the travel or is the accommodations? What, did, what was your feeling
1: about that? Flights to Lisbon because of this time of the year, it's a big holiday destination. They're expensive already, but because there's an increase in demand because of World Youth Day, they're even more expensive. And then the accommodation is really the expensive part because you have to realize that Lisbon, the city, the capital of Portugal, it only has five hundred thousand residents. Half a million people live in the city, so they're simply it's not geared to welcome, let's say, one. 1.5 million pilgrims coming over the course of a week you know what happens in capitalism demand supply prices mm-hmm. so with people really needing hotel rooms and hotel rooms being in such short supply they went up crazy prices i remember because i'm treating my uh, my parents and my uncle who's a holy ghost father and uh, who their headquarters is based in lisbon I rented them an Airbnb to come for the week just to be there and soak up the atmosphere. And one Airbnb I saw for seven nights near, close to the site where the Pope will have his final mass, it was going for $12,000. What? For one, It was crazy. <laughs> now that's on the extreme uh, end of the scale, but the prices of hotel rooms, you're looking at several hundreds of dollars a night. So I put this to the mayor, Carlos Modis. He's the mayor of Lisbon and he's in charge of all the logistics from the city and the government's perspective. And I said to him in an interview for EWTN News In Depth, what is the city doing to keep in control these prices? And what are you saying to young people who really want to come to World Youth Day? They want to be with the Pope. They want to be with the universal Catholic Church, but they simply can't afford it. And his answer which kind of went viral in Lisbon, actually, Gracie, it got a lot of criticism. He said, look, just get here and we'll figure it out. Oh. <laughs> he said, yeah, I, I, you have to admire his chutzpah. He said, we'll find a solution. He said, come to Lisbon and we will find a solution. And a direct quote, he said, you won't be on the streets sleeping on the streets, but we will find maybe a school hall. Uh, people will be opening up their homes to host people. And so on and so forth. Uh, you know,
0: I like and that. I like that answer. Like you say, it's a it's a good, daring, adventurous answer. But I think, as a mother who's sending her sixteen year old to Lisbon, I'm glad that she has uh, a lodging uh, outside the the city uh, to stay with uh, with uh, with uh, with, a, with a big group of girls that's going. I wouldn't want her <laughs> staying
1: well, on it, the floor I'm of sure. a of a school. <laughs> of a school, I know. But and, yeah, on one hand, you know, that's what it's all about. On world youth day. The the night before the 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 mass on the final day with Pope Francis, the young people are going to sleep out the grass under the stars. It will be beautiful. And a lot of that is a World Youth Day, just going with the flow, going with the Holy Spirit, putting trust. But, you know, a lot of uh, people on Twitter, 100,000 people have watched that clip of the mayor saying that now already and I think there was controversy because in Lisbon, students have been finding it difficult to get accommodation all year round uh, because it's too expensive for students. The homeless people, the homeless community have been complaining that there isn't enough housing for them and then they were criticizing the mayor saying, oh wait, when there's this religious event and lots of Catholics are coming and you know, this cynical view you could say they're coming to spend money, now the city is bending over backwards and saying, it doesn't matter what happens, come we'll find a solution we'll put you somewhere oh but that's a very
0: that seems to me a very dark take for um, yes i for for what 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 is a very joyful thing which is a a, a, an international gathering of young people who are coming for a good purpose right i mean uh you see you say oh uh, 1.5 million young people roaming the streets you got you might get a little nervous right you say oh they're gonna some of these could be hooligans and getting up to no good, but we know, as all the World Youth Days have been, they are occasions of, of joy and togetherness and community and, and not occasions for, for, for bad experiences, right, that a city might regret. At least I've never heard of
1: yeah. any. No, you're absolutely right. It's not a World Cup football final where yes. you're going to have hooligans <laughs> or something trashing the place. But I think, of course, when something big like this happens, you get a mixed reaction. And of course, like my own country, Ireland, which we reported on recently on EWTN News in Depth, Lisbon has suffered a lot of the same faith in that what once was a traditionally very Catholic country with the huge mass attendance and people practicing their faith, faith intertwined into nearly every aspect of life. Over the last number of years, that faith has eroded to a large degree because of the sexual abuse scandals, because of people not wanting to practice their faith anymore, being too lazy, you know, the list goes on and on. So you have a certain degree of society there who are looking at this big event taking place. It it will congest the traffic and all that kind of stuff. And the fact that the government are spending 30 something million on it, they're complaining about uh, that and they're criticizing the the costs. Maybe they have right to do so to a certain extent. Um, But on the other hand, when we went there, we talked to some of the young Catholics in Lisbon and Gracie, their enthusiasm and their excitement that their city will be hosting Pope Francis and possibly one, 1. 1.5 million young Catholics from across the globe. I mean, it was magic oh. uh, how excited they felt. And they said, look, we know people are concerned. We know they're angry. We know that there's some naysayers out there, but they believe that once it happens and once the people come and they see and um, one person said it to me they'll see it in your face they will just see Jesus in your face and they will know so that's um, beautiful Colm. Be, that's beautiful yeah, that's
0: exactly it's, what it's, i imagine right like 1.5 million young people with jesus in their face and it's so it's it's so it's so needed because as you say the world has become more secular and young people um, don't practice their faith the way their parents did and their grandparents uh in general so how wonderful that these Young people are making that effort and and finding that support amongst themselves, right? To live that life of faith, which can be so countercultural.
1: And you just think, Racy, how the world has changed since only the last World Youth Day. Now, I know it had to be pushed back because of the pandemic, but since there was the previous World Youth Day, we've had a global pandemic that no one could ever have imagined. We have a war breakout in Ukraine, which has caused global instability, which has caused hunger and starvation in parts of Africa because of the rising cost of food we have uh, anxiety because of global warming we have uh, huge levels of um, mental health issues and depression
0: yeah young people have suffered tremendously uh, from all these things and um, they have terrible we just have such terrible statistics and, and I'm and it's not just in the United States right with mental health of young people I'm sure it's in Europe and and everywhere else that people are coming from
1: in, in my country of Ireland, it is 100%. I met a journalist, uh, a top journalist from Denmark the other day. Denmark is similar size to Ireland, a population of 5 million people. And she said officially in Denmark, 500,000 people are on medication for uh, mental health issues and anxiety. That's 10% of the population. So we have a huge issue. I think it's higher you know, here. People,
0: <laughs> I think it's that, higher that is, here. In,
1: it's incredible. So, it's terrible they're,
0: they're, and nothing can give you better... Um better relief and comfort and consolation than a than than a life of meaning. And the best life mm. of meaning is to know we are children of God, right? And this is what these these young people are doing.
1: And I think even the state in, in Portugal, they recognize that as well. I mean, they're investing in this because they see as well, it's a good economic return. If a million people come and they spend 100 euros each, you got got 100 million euros and they've invested 36 million euros. So it's good math. But the mayor, when I interviewed him, And he said about people complaining and saying this and that, he said, but look, young people are coming in a world that is so divided now and there's so much upset and hurt. He said for them to be here and they're going to be the future, these young people going out, meeting Pope Francis and listening to what he has to say to them. He said that is just an incredible opportunity for Lisbon and for Portugal. So it's great to see that the Portuguese government are embracing this as well. Um, and then for the Catholic Church in Lisbon, it's going to be a good shot in the arm, a boost probably that they need at the moment, um, a new life, um, breathe it into the church.
0: If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Conversations with Consequences on EWTN Radio. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and we're talking with a dear friend of the show, Colm Flynn of EWTN News. And he's giving us a preview on World Youth Day, which which is kicking off in Lisbon next week. Now, one of the things you've uh, you've done in your in your work as a reporter is interview the bishop of Lisbon, Bishop Aguiar. He was in the news a bit and um, made some comment that uh, was taken up. Maybe he just made off the cuff, but it it caused some hackles to rise and people have made have been a little put off by a comment that he made, saying something about young people are are coming, but not necessarily to be apostles of the faith, but just to be very like universally accepting of everyone's faith. And no less than Bishop Barron of, of Word on Fire said, "No, the young people that are going to World Youth Day are going to uh, be there as apostles of their faith, evangelists of their faith, of of, of our of our wonderful Catholic." Um, uh, Traditions and values and ideals, and and no indifferentism. So you've you've spoken to Bishop Aguiar. Tell me tell me your take on all this.
1: Yeah, I think the comment that he made, not in the interview he did with uh, me, but another outlet or another journalist, I think it was uh, it, it, evangelization shouldn't be the priority or something like that. It's the encounter, and young people, no matter what background or no matter what religion, faith. or or no fate should come together. And in the interview I did with him for EWTN News In Depth, he did uh, say that as well in, in terms of, you know, he wants everyone to feel, feel welcome at World Youth Day, regardless of your background, your religion, where you're coming from. And he said he wants it to be a watershed moment. That was his words, a watershed moment for young people to come together and decide the type of future that they want to have. This is their chance to decide this is the type of future we want to have. But he also said in that interview very strongly that he is most excited about the fact that young people are going to have an encounter with Pope Francis and with Jesus Christ. He said mm-hmm. that very strongly in the interview because I asked him about his meeting with Pope Francis and his wishes for it. And then I asked him, well, you're in charge, Archbishop, of setting the tone and the theme and the book stops with him, right? He's in charge of organising this huge, logistical, spiritual pilgrimage. There's so much to do and, and never enough time to do it. And he said, it's like a defibrillator to the heart. That was his words. He said, it's like a shock when you think about it. But he said, what we're excited about is the encounter with Pope Francis, the young people will have, and their encounter with Jesus Christ. So, you know, I, I that, that article has just been published today. And he spoke about that. And then he spoke about all the preparations that are being done. He spoke about his meeting with Pope Francis, what he... The Pope expressed to him for his wishes for World Youth Day to be, and there's a lot of resting on his shoulders. And by the way, he was just announced by Pope Francis the other week as one of the 21, I think it is 21 new cardinal elects. Yeah, so he will be. Cardinal in September, he will then be Cardinal uh, Americo Aguiar.
0: You know, it's a tough, it's a tough concept and a tough topic to talk to talk about, right? Um, the, being a, a witness to our faith, but also being uh, very welcoming and opening, and opening our hearts to others. So I can see why things could get a little touchy when you do, <laughs> when you when you don't express things perfectly. I know that the that the that the young people going to to World Youth Day, as they always have been, are full of openness and open heart heartedness to, to everyone, regardless of faith. I mean, you, you can't be enthusiastic about, about Christ and wanting to meet Christ and not also see yourself as an ambassador for Christ to everyone, right? To, to the whole world and and to bring Christ to others. You don't choose the other, right? You say, I'm going to be Christ to everyone I see around me. So I'm, I feel confident that that's all gonna work out. Tell us about some of the some of the things that happen in World Youth Day. I'm, I'm a little ignorant. I don't know exactly all the different uh, things that are available to our young people when they go to these events.
1: There's loads of different events happening across the week. Of course, you will have mass in different areas. Uh, there will be confession. There's a confession boxes uh, made out of wood that were actually built and constructed by someone who used to be in prison and then really? had a conversion. So it's an amazing story. But the, the, the big thing, of course, will be Pope Francis's final mass with the group in this park. They've built the entire park for the mass on the final day. And that's where they're hoping around a million people or 1.5, if you want to be very optimistic, will show up for that. That is going to be, I think, and it always is, the kind of the... The moment when it is most impactful, at least that's what when I remember talking to Cardinal, the late Cardinal George Pell, God rest him, and he was talking about Pope Benedict going to Sydney. And he said that when he stood there, Pope Benedict and held up the Eucharist, you could hear a pin drop Mm. in the crowd of hundreds of thousands of people. So... I think after the young people have camped out the night before with the beautiful Lisbon breeze coming from the from the ocean, it'll be lovely and warm, very hot during the day, but nice and warm at night. And then to have the mass the next day, I think that will be um, just the, the beautiful moment. And as you said, Gracie, you think about young people coming from around the world where they are. Feeling discouraged, they look to their circle of friends, who maybe are not practicing their faith. They look to television and radio—not EWTN, of course—but they look to other networks, and they—they're being told, "Ah, it's old-fashioned. It's uh, you don't need faith, you don't need religion." But to feel so revitalized and reinvigorated when they go and they see, "Wow, look at all these young people from all different." countries, all different nationalities with all these different flags. Countries sometimes you've never heard of before, seen the Mm -hmm. flag, and they're part of the one universal Catholic church, saying the same prayers, praying to the same God, and supporting each other. Uh, That, I think, is going to be so special for the young people. And then seeing the Holy Father, someone they would never normally get a chance to see unless they came here to Rome, to one of the general audiences, or the Holy Father visited their country. But to see, wow, there's the Pope. It's not just this figure that we see on our television screens or on our smartphone, uh, or the the recent AI photographs of the Pope that went viral uh, across Instagram, there he is, standing in front of us this the successor of peter this is why we're here the roman catholic church so and i think pope, i'm excited to hear as well you uh, you should get your daughter on the show by the way afterwards to get her <laughs> reaction oh to yes i should interview you know, her maybe
0: you'll interview her in lisbon i'll have to i'll have to connect you two and she can give you the american the young american girl's perspective
1: that would be awesome
0: on that i happen to admire very much the way that pope francis speaks to young people i think he has a very a very natural way of speaking he's it's a Disarming, it's it's affectionate, it's tender. I've I've I have a book of of speeches that he's given to young people. I can't remember the name right now. Um, different um, at different times that he's addressed them in different situations, and really, it's lovely uh, the way that he's able to connect with the youth. Um, he has a an informal way of speaking um, that's uh, very heart to heart. So i I've, I'm I've, I've, I think. Um, there's a lot of there's a lot of hope in, in, in me that that he will be able to make really beautiful connections um, with with these young people that that will live in their hearts for for the rest of their lives and they'll go back home and they will able, they will be able to to be, wonderful apostles and evangelists of of the gospel.
1: And it's interesting when you say that about the Pope having this natural ability to connect with young people. You know, the Pope is so good at going to meet people where they're at. You know, Lampedusa, his first papal trip to the island to meet the immigrants and to be there with them and to look into the whites of their eyes and listen to their stories. But even you look at something like recently, I think Pope Francis did a a program with Disney Plus, the, the outlet, and he sat around with a group of young people who had all different types of views and opinions on very hot button issues from same-sex relationships to abortion and in that program the pope listened and you could see him listening carefully and the young people were arguing among themselves because they had different opinions on the issues some pro some against and uh, the pope at the end while being firm in church teachings and reinforcing church teachings uh, in the program He was able to listen and listen and listen and then explain it in a way where then when the camera cut back to the young people, you could see them kind of just listening and taking it in, uh, which I thought was remarkable to see as well. So, Grizzy, I'm so excited. Can you imagine that we get this chance with EWTN? We're flying in a crew of around 80 people to cover this for television, not only in English, but in Spanish, in Polish, in German as well. Live coverage from different studios they're building in different sections of the city. And this will be coverage of all the main events that the Pope is at, that the Pope isn't at. And then we'll have analysis. We'll be talking to young people in the crowd. Uh, We'll have a crew up in Fatima when he goes to visit. It's going to be incredible. The only thing is, Gracie, for us, it's going to be very hot. So we're going to be we're going to have to bring a lot of a lot of changes of shirts. Well, you
0: were just there. What was the temperature like?
1: Well, when I was there, it was a few weeks ago. It was okay. It was very bearable. It was much cooler than it is here now. But I think I checked it this morning. Don't ask me in Fahrenheit. But again, it's going to be around 30 degrees Celsius. So for our European listeners to EWTN radio, you know what that is. it's very very hot just take it like here's a layman terms it's going to be very hot but luckily there's plenty <laughs> next of next time water. before we
0: talk calm we've we've got us we've got to straighten out our celsius and fahrenheit <laughs>
1: yeah exactly but the good thing is a lot of aqua a lot of water and a lot of the good porto wine as well so that will keep you all hydrated and uh, you won't go astray. are the
0: i've never been to portugal are the portuguese friendly people
1: Really friendly. And when we were there, everyone, when we went around now, when you're with a TV crew, you draw attention anyway. So when people see the cameras and setting up lights and microphones, they always come over and ask, oh, what are you doing? When I say we're with EWTN, some people know EWTN straight away and they always say, oh, Mother Angelica TV, they call it Mother Angelica's (laughs) network. That's its first name, Mother Angelica's television before EWTN. And then other people who don't know EWTN are just fascinated. But they were all very friendly, very welcoming to us. The coffee shops, the restaurants we went to at night. And the Portuguese that we met, like I said, the young Catholics, we went to a young faith group that meet once a week, and they sit around in a circle and normally pray together and talk. We interrupted that one night, and we set up our cameras, and I sat in the middle of the circle and just spoke to the young people. You know, tell me what it's like to be a young Catholic in Portugal. How is the faith? changed? What are the um, hopes for World Youth Day? What are the fears for World Youth Day? It was really nice, as well as one young person saying what I just told you in the interview, that people will see Jesus on your face. Another person I put it to, I said, young people are wondering, should they come? Should they not? It's far away. It's expensive. The mayor said that you won't be sleeping on the streets, but you'll be sleeping somewhere. You you know, we'll figure it out when you get here. And he said, but look, Jesus said, come follow me. So if Jesus says, come to Lisbon, then you got to do it. You That's gotta it. do it, just go and,
0: and you can only bring one ro- one robe and uh, no extra pair of sandals <laughs> and no money bag. Yeah. So that's how our young knows. children are going to travel. You know, well, you I, know I have to plug your reason, I have to reason. plug your work. Calm. I've seen you. I've seen you do impromptu interviews. Uh, you and I were in Israel together a few months ago, and I saw you at the Temple Mount go up to these young, these beautiful Orthodox families and and ask ask them about their faith and what it's like to 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 worship like that as as as, as Orthodox Jews and at the Temple at the wall of the Temple. That's all that's left, the Western Wall. You have a wonderful way with. People, you you have a way of of opening. Just like you have like a key to people's hearts and their minds, and and I congratulate you. That's a beautiful a beautiful skill and a beautiful virtue that you have. Because I think what you're expressing is your love of others. When when you're able to talk to them that way,
1: Brassy, I'm gonna to have to send you a hundred dollars for reading my script perfectly that I sent you. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs>
0: Well, you also have a great sense of humor. So that's another. Well,
1: Gracie, that's very, very kind of you. And you know what? Like you as well in, in Israel. I mean, you're no shrinking violet. You were off speaking to everyone as well. It's a uh, lustre No, no, life. not
0: like you. Not like you, calm. No,
2: but I,
1: I just love people and people look at me and I think they're disarmed because they say, who is this? Like, when you look at me, I'm a mess of a person. I'm a, Look at me, I'm sweating now. And I'm a sweaty Irish guy in the middle of Israel. <laughs> like, what's going on? You know, so I think people just say, oh, this poor guy. feel sorry for me and they just talk to me but i genuinely love it i just love talking to people and uh, there's so many great people in the catholic church you know whether they're priests or nuns or lay people Doing incredible things around the world that most of us would never do because we're caught up in our own thing. So what what a privilege to be able to talk to them. Well, a privilege, and, uh, a privilege
0: for-, for your for the people who get to watch you. And we will be looking for your work uh, starting next week. Coverage uh, from EWTN, which sounds that it will be a blanket coverage, but we'll be looking out for for your wonderful interviews and your assessment of all the great things that are happening in Lisbon on World Youth Day. So thank you, Conflin of EWTN News.
1: It's been a pleasure, Gracie, and thank you so much having me on
0: welcome back to conversations with consequences i'm your hostess dr gracie christie an old friend of the show, Carrie Gress, a very smart woman, very intellectual. Welcome to the show, Carrie. Hi, thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here with you. No, it's always wonderful when you're on. You consistently deliver really fabulous books into this cultural conversation that we're having on a lot of topics, but especially in this case, specifically in this case, the role of women in society, how women are viewed, and this uh, rather mad moment that we're we, we find ourselves in and, and how we got here. So your new book is called The End of Woman, How mm-hmm. Smashing the Patriarchy Has Destroyed Us. You're wading right into this uh, cultural, <laughs> what I call a cultural conversation because it's so, it's everywhere we, we look, right? It seems uh, something that everyone is is having to to confront in one way or another. Mm-hmm. I'd like to tell you to start that I'm am a I'm a huge fan of the patriarchy. I was raised in a patriarchy <laughs> and our patriarch, my father died a few months ago and he was a, a patriarch in, in all the beautiful senses of the word and, and the and what I associate with patriarchy, which is it's self-sacrificial commitment, faithfulness, mm-hmm. complete, just an enveloping an enveloping love that supports and and it also expects, yeah. A lot from us and and he's so sorely missed so our patriarch is gone um when people talk about the patriarchy being evil it makes me sad because i think that they haven't had a good father in their lives because they don't know what that is so anyway what a wonderful contribution your book tell us tell us how how you are how you're placing yourself in this conversation
3: yeah well thank you first of all for sharing about your your own father i think that's you know one of the things that's happened is just really even this branding of patriarchy in a really de- derogatory sense, and we don't hear the stories of the the beautiful ways in which men use their gifts to make our lives meaningful and beautiful and you know compelling. So I, I think that that's an important piece that you know I've heard a lot of people just confuse it with you know vague idea of of the bad things that men do, um, but don't really understand that it, you know when they're attacking the patriarchy, they're they're also attacking the church, they're attacking the military, they're attacking all of these things, these ways in which men's gifts have materialized throughout the centuries. So that's just you know one of the things. To, to consider in it. But really, the, the book itself was almost, was a follow up to my book, The Anti Mary Exposed. Although, I in The, the Anti Mary Exposed, I only went back to the 1960s roughly. And I just felt like there was this whole area of the first wave feminism that I just didn't understand. And I wanted to really wrap my mind around it. Um, so it's kind of a prequel, actually, to The Anti Mary Exposed. But when I started digging into it, I was just absolutely flabbergasted at what I was finding because I was expecting to find the sort of pure form of feminism that focused on helping women as women. And that was not at all what I found. In fact, I was just pretty shocked from the get-go to see how this idea of destroying men and the and the patriarchy, restructuring society was there from the beginning. And then to see in the 1800s, how it developed really into the occult and this idea of free love too, of getting rid of monogamy and the the, the nuclear family. You know, all those things were there from the very beginning. And I was just astounded that, you know, why don't we know this? Um, so anyway, it was a really fascinating book to research, really challenging challenging in a lot of ways. But I used, you know, sources that I used were, were all liberal sources. I didn't, there just aren't a lot of conservative books on this because most people don't want to dig into it. And so anyway, that was the, the amazing thing was what I was able to piece together from people who are supposed to be proponents of it.
0: Let me ask you, because you're talking about going very far back, right? In, yeah. In the in the beginnings of feminism, mm-hmm. um, which is, is not what we think of as feminism in this modern iteration. Yeah. It's hundreds of years old, right? We're talking about this the, the 1700s, I would guess. Is a- yeah the, time the you're late, talking 1700s about. late 1700s is the beginning point. Uh-huh. My impression was that the early feminists of that stage, of the early 1700s, were, in a sense, maternal feminists and were couching their idea of 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 a, of a more just world, right, where women would have all the things in, in society that they are due as human beings, right? Mm-hmm. Like protection mm-hmm. from from, yeah. from abusive men, for instance, an abusive husband. What did you find instead? I thought that these I thought that yeah. the early feminists couched their their defense of women within the family, within maternal the maternal aspect of women and, and their necess yeah. and their needs as women per se.
3: There were certainly some women that did that, but the women the big names of, of the feminists People like Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony, um, they were were not doing that, actually. And I think the, the fundamental question that they were asking wasn't how do we help women as women, but they were asking how do we help women become more like men. Um, and that's really the trajectory that, that.
0: And you found that right from that, on. you right. You found that right from that, from, from the, the beginning. very beginning,
3: from the very beginning. So
0: they yeah. were imagining, um, a fulfilled woman as as a woman who looks more like a man whose life is shaped more like Absolutely. a man's life. So what, what yeah. kind of details yeah. were they, were they interested in?
3: Um, well, I mean, again, this idea of free love and allowing women to not be, you know, saddled by having children. And, you know, a lot of what they're responding to are some really awful things. So, I, you know, I, I think that their intentions were definitely right. I just think that the way that they went about doing it. And the other thing that was really striking about it was to see that the women that were most outspoken and that really got the attention of people, people like Mary Wollstonecraft, and um Elizabeth Katie Stanton these were incredibly broken women who were responding to some very broken things in their lives and you can you can see you know and those are just the beginning you can see all the way through the movement certainly up to the feminists today that there's a lot of brokenness there and anger and rage that they're responding to in ways that are actually not healing and promoting women but actually are, are you know requiring of us that we, change all of society is that is, um, that,
0: is that brokenness come to go, go to what we were talking about in the beginning maybe um a, a wrongly informed sense of fatherhood and and patriarchy? oh absolutely
3: yeah no absolutely i mean mary Wollstonecraft had a horrible father um i go into some of the details of that in the book um elizabeth Cady stanton was very upset when her eldest brother died and, and her father just lamented that she wasn't a boy. You know, there are all kinds of things that, that happened in their lives um, that made them resent being women. And so that was the idea was, well, how do we just not be women anymore? How do we make our lives a lot more like men's? Um, and you can see this push too. in you know, someone like Margaret, Margaret, Sanger, who's takes it to a whole new level by chemically, you know, altering women so that we are more like men. Um, and so anyway, it's, it's a fa- It was a fascinating study to just go through and really realize there were problems from the very beginning. And, of course, um, the occult played into it. Elizabeth Cady Stanton was very involved in seances and with mediums, um, you know, th- those kinds of things that aren't going to make it into, you know, a, a popular cop coffee table book or something. Mm -hmm. Uh, These are the kinds of ugly details that I, you know, found a lot of information about. Um, And it, it was just amazing to me. Like, again, why don't we know this? And there's just this incredible effort to sort of polish it and make feminism look like it's this very, you know, loving kind of grandmotherly movement that's helping women, when in fact, that's isn't really what it's doing at all. It's just trying to change women's you know fundamentally in their human nature it's
0: a you know it's a very common that. failing that we have we see the results of man's fallen nature man and woman's fallen mm-hmm. nature um which in in the male case um, can result in, in in abusive relationships and and a lack of yeah. a lack of respect for the delicacy of of the women in in a man's life right and their and their ex and their and their needs and their equality before god um, and instead of instead of focusing on that on on the fact that this is this is a fallen, this is the result of sin, It's not the result of some of something inherently being wrong with man. it's it's that same sinfulness that affects all of us. Mm-hmm.
3: yeah, no, absolutely. And I think this is this the saddest part is that these are the voices that we've been listening to that have you know pervaded all of women's policy in our current day um all come from this kind of brokenness that really wants to just change human nature and um sidestep you know all the th- all the ways in which women are gifted especially the that role of motherhood
0: so we go we fast forward through several decades and we get to well, well couple hundred years actually or a (laughs) hundred years and we get to the industrial revolution which to me is very interesting it's it's a point in time when um the idea was that women should go out to work and people become ciphers right you a man can do a woman can do almost as much work as a man and suddenly factories have to be filled with people and um, um a woman doesn't she starts to lose her sphere uh where where she's where she's the mother of the house and all that and and there's and there's a push, a, um, a financial push to make this real, right? Where mm-hmm. a woman doesn't can be indistinguishable from a man. She maybe she can't do as many hours of work, but she can get close uh, and lift. Yeah. She can lift almost as heavy things. Um, so I I, I I tend to think that's one way feminism became the narrative of Western women, right? Like a woman, has, yeah, it just I, becomes interchangeable with men in the in the in finance in, in the outside world.
3: Yeah, I think um, actually it was probably the 1900s really was the big turning point because that was with the arrival of communism. And we can see this very clearly in Soviet Russia where they actively were trying to erase the the distinctions between man and woman. Um, And the Westerners, you know, American women just flocked to this idea. And you see there was actually a, a group called Congress for American Women, which was started by a woman named Bella Dodd, who was a very deep, Communist in the in the U.S. system, and um, she ended up having this deep conversion at the at the you know blessing of uh, Fulton Sheen, venerable Fulton Sheen, and um, he helped bring her into the church. Um, but before that, she established this this group called the Congress for American Women, which is basically. Soviet propaganda, and it influenced the highest echelon of academic women, um, you know, department store owner wives, uh, you name it. There were these women were involved in it, um, and it became very fashionable. And this this was really the second step of it, where feminism kind of glommed on to communism because they realized they had similar purposes, which was to get women out of the home um, to find freedom for them, um, or what they uh, imagined freedom to be, um, which was, you know, away from the drudgery of childhood. And that that was actually (laughs) one of the fascinating things to see, too, was the, the language change around the 1900s, where you could no longer speak of that tenderness that a mother has towards her child, but it it all became the word drudgery that was just used over and over and over. again. That
0: reminds me. There's yeah. a wonderful quote. You probably know it from Chesterton. He says, "If a woman is 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 um, taking care of her husband and her children and her home, she's a slave. But if she's working 12 hours a day in the office <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> for the man, well then right. she's she's, free. she's liberated."
3: <laughs> yeah. No. It's it's just incredible. I think that uh, yeah. There's it's it's absolutely the case that that's how. It's begun to be looked at, and and then it was interesting to see Betty Friedan's role in all of this, um, because she was very involved in this this Congress for American Women, and um, actually the the um, U.S. Committee for Un-American Activities um, run in Congress had to shut it down. And this was before McCarthyism, um, because it was such, so obviously, um, a communist propaganda machine um, influencing academia and whatnot. So, So but Betty Friedan was involved in it. So it's amazing to see all of these little tentacles and the ways in which we've been formed by, um, by these hidden, you know, movements in the culture.
0: So we can, we can see as, as, as women, who've been around the block a little and and we've lived a lot of these feminist uh, ideals we've mm-hmm. we've seen them in action um and we've lived some of it, right Yeah um, and sometimes to sometimes to our sadness um, mm-hmm. and and our detriment um, but now we're living in a different time. so we fast forward a little more and the women's movement I think all of us can see has has led directly to the gay rights and the trans movements yeah and and maybe yeah. we don't all see it, but I think your book does a very good. Uh, job in draw connecting those dots how do, how does one thing lead to the other
3: well the first piece again is the the use of the pill which was used so widely um, that heterosexuals no longer saw fertility as connected to their sexuality um, and that is is a fundamental piece because suddenly if a heterosexual couple is not fertile then there's not very much different about their relationship than the relationship with the same-sex couple. Um, And they suddenly see, you know, this is where we buy into that idea of, you know, love is love and all of that, because we don't see those distinctions because it's not happening in our own marriages. Um, So that was certainly a a first step. Um, But in the the ideas of the new left, which which certainly infected feminism in the 60s and 70s, um, this idea of gender was something that they were trying to get rid of entirely, you know, at all. Um, And they just wanted this amorphous, you know, humanness um, to sort of reign. And so we can see that marching through, especially now, that we're, we're you know, the trans movement is such a great example of that, that, um, you know, it's not enough to take away the home, to take away our children. Now they're taking away our actual physical bodies um, and trying to erase women entirely. Um, So, yeah, it's just, it's pretty amazing when you start seeing all the dots and seeing how there's just been this very slow grinding effort to just really erase womanhood entirely. And, you know, it's just, it's incredibly tragic, especially because these young girls have no idea the the irreparable damage as Abigail Schreier's book calls it, um, that's that's happening to them that um, you know, they have this sense that this again will liberate them. And in fact, just like all the other feminist promises, it's it's not liberating. It's enslaving and debilitating and confusing and, you know, heartbreaking.
0: What what always amazes me is the lack of insight on on the part of feminists who are so committed to their feminism and they talk mm. about the terrible patriarchy, and then they don't recognize when the, yes. this patriarchy that they say that they hate, um, mm-hmm. the male genius suddenly mm-hmm. is invading every every female um, yeah. prerogative and erasing their prerogatives and their spaces and their, their intimacy yeah. and their right. sports, um, erasing the yeah. idea, also erasing the idea that a girl, a young girl who goes into puberty, is is going on to a beautiful stage in her life (laughs) that's Mm -hmm. that is going to fill her with all this going to open all these fulfilling opportunities for these opportunities Mm -hmm. for fulfillment for her right and motherhood and and wifehood Um, all this devaluing that has been going on for so long has made women terribly unhappy And and oh, yeah. And men, too. No,
3: absolutely. And that's one of the things that has really kept me working on this is just to see the statistics of what is happening with women and see the numbers of, you know, depression and suicide and divorce and, you know, on and on. The list is so long and ugly um, of what has happened to women. And, you know, we also see, too, that women are are craving to be able to express that maternal side of them, we see that with the, what the boom in our the pet industry. You know, ten years ago, no one had ever seen a stroller for a dog, and mm-hmm. now it seems like <laughs> they're everywhere. Um, so, I, you know, I think on the one hand, it's it's really sad because we've told women not to have children, and now they're looking for a surrogate. But at the same time, it's sort of hopeful that that we sort of irrepressible. We have this desire to mother something. You know, tragically, we we spend seven hundred million dollars on pet costumes for Halloween. Wow. Um, not realizing, like, maybe there's a problem here. Maybe we shouldn't be taking this away from women. Maybe we need to give them back this fear of, of you know, authentic motherhood um, instead of forcing them to find surrogates or, you know, or just being alone. So, yeah, I think that the unhappiness is is the saddest part. And just hearing the personal stories that I do hear from women that, you know, are shared with me about trying to live the, the goals of feminism and then finally getting there and realizing it's, it, you know, was hollow. There was nothing there. They've given up so much and expected a lot in return and it, it never showed up.
0: Carrie, I think this is a great book for people, not only women and men, to read for themselves but also to to give to young to young women who have their mm-hmm. whole lives ahead of them and are being yeah. fed a packet of lies and and yeah. too often it's too late when they wake up mm-hmm. and, and they realize um, that sterility and, and individualism and loneliness is not, not the answer. So thank you, thank Carrie. You. I know the book, went, I think in August, it will be released? Yeah, August 15th is... Um, the release date and how Mm -hmm. can our listeners pre-order the book it's called let me remind them the end of woman how smashing the patriarchy has destroyed us
3: uh it's certainly available at places like amazon but if if people want a signed copy um they can get it from my site theologyofhome.com they're available um there and of course regnery publishing as well as the publisher and they have it available too
0: Well, thank you so much, Carrie Griss, and uh, congratulations on another another wonderful book. (laughs) Thank you so much. And now, Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's gospel.
2: This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a privilege for me to be with you as we enter into the consequential conversation the risen Lord Jesus wants to have with each of us this Sunday. When Jesus will give us two inspiring, I like to call them twin parables that sum up the approach we should have to him and to our faith. The parables are simple enough to understand. The first is of a poor peasant finding a buried treasure in the midst of his work in someone else's field. There were no real banks to speak of in ancient Palestine. People would often bury things of value in secret locations and fields. There was no sense of finders, keepers, losers, weepers. Whatever was discovered in a field belonged not to the discoverer, but to the owner of the field. That's why the man in Jesus' parable needed to Buy the field. It's quite obvious that the one selling had no idea that an ancient treasure was buried on his property. He didn't place the same value in the field as much as the peasant did, and so the peasant sold what he had. For the peasant, selling everything that he obtained in order to get the money to buy the field was nothing compared to what he knew he would be gaining. The second parable is of a wealthy merchant searching for precious pearl, going from place to place in pursuit of something truly valuable and beautiful. Finally, he found the pearl of his dreams, whose worth was unsurpassable and whose owner valued it less than the money he would get in exchange. So the wealthy merchant sold all that he had before, doubtless houses, gems, and other valuables, to obtain that pearl of great price. Jesus wants us to learn three spiritual lessons From these parables. The first is an insatiable desire for the kingdom of God, which is basically an unquenchable thirst for God. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talked to us about a treasure. He said, Where your treasure is, there will your heart also be. He declared in that same sermon that many of us seek to store up for ourselves treasures on earth, where moths and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. But he wanted us to store up for ourselves treasures in heaven, a treasure not married and measured in clothing that moths can wreck, metals that rust can corrode, or money that thieves or taxes can take. Jesus is communicating that our heart must be set on God. And not just in general, but more than star athletes want to win another championship. Ambitious politicians seek to win higher office. And a man in love does everything he can to win over and marry the woman he can't stop thinking about. The second lesson Jesus wants to learn is a recognition of where the treasure of the kingdom can be found. The merchant in the parable knew the places he needed to go. So he crisscrossed the ancient world visiting the shops and markets where pearls would be sold. The farmer wasn't so much searching for a buried treasure, but when he discovered in the middle of his workday, tilling new parts of the landowner's property that had yet not been farmed, he knew what to do. The question for us is where do we go to find the treasure? We find God, who is our treasure, in personal prayer. We find him in the sacraments, especially mass and confession. We find him speaking to us in sacred scripture. We find him radiantly shining in our life and in the writing of the saints. We find him living within us in the truly Christian moral life with virtue. We find him in the loving service of our neighbor. Since every time we care for someone who is hungry, thirsty, naked, a stranger, ill, imprisoned, or otherwise in need, Jesus tells us that we through them are caring for him. But in order for us truly to find God in these ways, we need to grasp that each of the things I just named is a treasure. Since whenever we don't think that what we're dealing with is a treasure, it's going to be almost impossible for us to find God there. The third lesson Jesus wants us to learn is the willingness to sacrifice everything to obtain that treasure, for for not prepared to sacrifice everything for it, will often not be willing to sacrifice far less than everything to obtain it either. The rich gem hunter and the poor hard working peasant sold all they had to obtain the pearl and field respectively. Likewise we need to do more than hunger for the kingdom and recognize where it can be found. We also need to be willing to make the sacrifices necessary to seize it. The apostles are the great illustrations of those who, when finding a treasure, left all they had to follow Jesus. When the Lord Jesus called Peter, Andrew, James, and John from their boats right after they had captured the largest catch in their career, the evangelists tell us they left immediately and followed him. Likewise, when Jesus came to find St. Matthew at his tax collecting post and said, follow me, Matthew left all the money on the table, even his precious ledgers, and immediately got up to follow Jesus. St. Peter would summarize the common characteristic of the apostles when he turned to Jesus and said, we have given up everything and followed you. That generosity, that risk-taking, that capacity to sacrifice the good for the better and the best, Stands in sharp contrast to the one who was famous for not leaving everything to follow Jesus and instead walked away from him. Jesus told the rich young man, if you wish to be perfect, go sell what you have and give the money to the poor. You will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. The wealthy young man was too addicted to his material possessions to leave them behind. He chose his stuff over Jesus. And the gospel writers tell us went away sad. Many are like him. They say their prayers each day. They come to Mass on Sundays and Holy Days of Obligation. They go to confession. They get married in the church. They contribute to charity and support their parish in the good works of their diocese. But they're not really happy in the faith as God wants them to be. They're missing something because something is holding them back. Their earthly treasure has begun to own them and prevent them from seizing the treasure that will last forever. This type of attitude toward the kingdom Toward sacrificing good things for the greatest thing of all it explains the greatness that happens in individual lives in in the church. It explains so many adult conversions at great cost within families and societies. It explains martyrdom, because the martyrs account even their life here on earth less valuable than fidelity to God, living in His kingdom forever. It explains the lives of the saints, like Saint Ignatius Loyola, Alphonse Liguori, Peter Julian Amar, Saint John Vianney, whom the Church. We'll celebrate this week at Daily Mass because they're the ones who let go of so many great worldly expectations in order to become truly rich in God and his kingdom. It explains how to suffer and die well because for those who really seek God in his kingdom, death is not dreaded but desired. Since even though we have to leave behind so many loved ones and good things, we recognize that all of these goods are nothing in comparison to what God has prepared for those who love him. It explains vocations to the priesthood and their religious and consecrated life, because those who say yes to these callings put God above families of their own, his love about human love, his will above their will, his kingdom above amassing a kingdom of their own. And these vocations often come from families that are seeking, recognizing, and sacrificing for the pearl of great price, who is God, by sacrificing social media for prayer, sports leagues for math, their own vocations to care for others. It explains vibrant parishes. Because it's in those places that Catholics sacrifice their time, money, and expertise to build them and help them grow. It explains truly joyful homes, which arise from situations where family members and fellow residents willingly and repeatedly sacrifice to make others happy. To do things not because they have to, but because they choose to do so out of love. And the best place to grow in choosing the kingdom is at Mass. St. John Vianney, the patron saint of priests, once talked about how the Mass is the pearl of great price. Next to the sacrament, he said, we're like someone who dies of thirst next to a river, just needing to bend the head down to drink, like a poor man next to a treasure chest, when all that's needed is to stretch out the hand and grab the gold coins. Jesus in the Eucharist is the treasure who quenches our thirst, who makes us truly rich. That joy, that treasure, is ours to receive. That is what Jesus offers, the deal of an eternal lifetime. As we prepare for Mass this Sunday, let's beg him for the wisdom and the courage necessary to sacrifice whatever we need to make that deal.